Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. Hi. It is Wednesday night, and we are live, and it is time for Friends in Fiction. And I have to say, I love watching the Hive from Vancouver. Hello. I do, too. never mention it, but I love seeing that in the opening. It's so much fun. So it's time for Friends in Fiction. Let's get rolling. I am Patty Callahan-Henry. I'm Christy Woodson-Harvey. I'm Kristen Harmel. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. And this is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, librarians, and readers. Tonight, we are so excited to welcome our friend, Ariel Lahan, author of her newest one coming out in a couple days called The Frozen River. Ooh, we're so excited. But first, just a quick reminder to check out all the fun things going on in our Friends and Fiction community at friendsandfiction.com. There you'll find links to our bookshop.org page where our books and books from all of our guests, which is a lot of guests, are available at a discount to the Friends and Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa and to our weekly email newsletter sign up. You're on mute, Kristen. Such it, a would, it would help if you could hear me. That would be good. <laughs> You'll also find a link to our Friends in Fiction Writers Block podcast, a new episode of which drops every Friday. On last Friday's episode, Megan Ron talked with Isaac Fitzgerald about his New York Times bestselling memoir and essays, Dirtbag, Massachusetts, which is now out in paperback. And coming this Friday, Megan Ron will be talking with Stephanie Land, the author of the book that inspired the Netflix series Made, about her latest book, Class, a memoir of motherhood, hunger, and higher education, which is the latest GMA book club pick. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen directly on our website at friendsandfiction.com. But regardless, you can find more information there. Yeah. Over on the book club's Facebook page, the group is reading Christmas Presents by Lisa Unger, which I loved. You can join them for that live online author discussion on Monday, December 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern. And don't miss their happy hour with Ron Block and a special guest tomorrow at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. We don't even know who this special guest is, so <laughs> got to go tune in to find out. There are so many fun things going on with the Friends in Fiction community, and we have one more surprise for you tonight. We have been so excited to share this with all of you because you're always one of the first to know. Our very own Christy Woodson Harvey is going to be revealing the cover to her June 25th release, A Happier Life, available for pre-order now. Hint, hint. <laughs> pre-order her book now, damn it. See, I whispered it and she shouts it. That's the way we go around here. So Christy, what can you tell us about this amazing book before, which I have. Yes. 
one. I can't show it because you haven't done the cover reveal yet. Oh, good point. Oh, that's right. Oh, duh. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm so excited about this book. So it's my first book ever set in Beaufort, North Carolina, where I live, which I just have to tell you right off the bat because it was so fun um, to get to write a book about Beaufort. But it is about um, a woman named Keaton who discovers that um, her mother and her uncle have never sold their childhood home in Beaufort, North Carolina. She knows that her grandparents died in an accident before she was born, but she has absolutely no idea that, you know, all these remnants of their life are still sitting there. And of course she thinks this is bananas. And so when her mother asks her to go to Beaufort to put the house on the market, um, she doesn't agree at first, but then does for a lot of reasons that you find out in the book. And as soon as she gets there, she gets involved um, in a lot of town things because that's what you do when you move to Beaufort. And she meets uh, lots of friends who know lots of things about her grandparents. And so as she is getting to hear their stories and she's going through all of their possessions in this house that has literally been untouched since 1976, she starts to realize the stories that that she's been told about her grandparents her whole life might not have been true. And so then um, in the other point of view, we get to see Rebecca St. James, everyone calls her Bex, who is um, a fabulous hostess, which I just love about her. And she's known for that in her town. And um, we get to see her true story unravel from 1935 until that fateful night in 1976, when we get to find out what actually happened at that house on Sunset Lane. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> anyway, I'm super, super excited. So, um, Sean, let's show him the cover. It's so with it look how big your I name is on the cover it. look at that it's huge I love it I love it and you know we went back and forth a lot of different directions on this cover and um I love this one I think it's great and the funny thing is wait Patty hold it up again so it's like obviously like a cartoon but if you are on the Rachel Carson Reserve which is right across from my house and you are sitting there and you're looking back at Beaufort, like that's exactly what it looks exactly like. I mean, it, like. it doesn't look like cartoonish, but like that looks exactly that's like, awesome. you know, so that's really fun. So every time I see it, I'm like, oh, that's my favorite place in the world. So, I'm just yeah. going to do this all night. So Ariel, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Christy, um, how does it feel to know that you're writing about your actual town? Like, are you, are you feeling good about that? Like, are you feeling excited to have your neighbors and friends there? Read okay. It? So I'm excited about it, but also like, you know, you're writing a book. So I, I couldn't, I, I tried really hard. I didn't want to like just cram things in to cram them in, you know? And I'm like, oh, there are a few of my favorite places that like aren't in this book. So I'm going to put together like my definitive Beaufort travel guide to go along with the book so that people can like kind of get to see all my favorite places, even if they didn't make it into the book. But it was really fun because I got to put not a ton, but I got to put like a fair amount of, you know, the history of Beaufort and Carteret County um, into this book in the 1935 to 1976 part. So when you're reading about that fabulous concert at the casino from the dancing couple from New York City, like that was real. You know, everything that's in that yeah. book, I do want people to know that everything that's in the in the past sections is something that really happened. Um, I did take a couple liberties, like the year that the um, old homes tour started and some things like that. But I tell you in the book, but for the most part, it's, it's pretty much 
what it was. So it was really fun to get to learn a little more. Meg, just awesome. put in the chat, um, you're to Beaufort as Ellen is to Nantucket. I love that. It's yeah. so true. No, that's that's amazing. Well, Christy, congratulations. Thanks, Meg. <laughs> this is awesome. Well, all of you listening, make sure to let us know in the comments what you think of the cover. We're excited to hear what you think. Um, Unless you don't fantastic. like it and then just keep and it then just, <laughs> just don't tell us. Only good things. No, I'm just kidding. All right. This is so exciting. And this is a night of announcements because we can also announce that drum roll please patty all right the bit beautiful drum roll as usual Thank the you. 2024 <laughs> friends and fiction subscription box is available from our good friends at oxford exchange yay yeah we just literally Got it going. <laughs> I texted them from soccer at like 545 and I was like, don't update your scripts. We have a link. <laughs> Christy did all the hard, hard work. So in this year's box, you will receive my Summers at the Saint in May, Christy's A Happier Life in June, and you have the option, and we hope you will take us up on that, to order the paperback of Patty's The Secret Book of Flora Lee and the paperback of Kristen's The Paris Daughter. All books will come signed and with a fun, special Friends and Fiction gift you can only get with a subscription box. We'll be posting and pinning the pop, the post, posting and pinning the post <laughs> to the top of the Friends and Fiction Facebook page. It's the ultimate holiday gift, we think. <laughs> exactly. I feel like We're that's like how right? many woodchucks can a woodchuck chuck up a woodchuck? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We'll be posting and pinning the post. Posting and pinning the post. That's awesome. All right. We have so much to look forward to. And I know people have been asking about the box. So I know I'm going to be getting it as a gift for a couple people. So without further ado, let's move on to our guest, Ariel Lahan. Ariel is a critically acclaimed New York Times bestselling author of historical fiction. Ariel's books have been translated into numerous languages and have been library reads, One Book, One Country Read, Indie Next, Costco, Amazon Spotlight, and Book of the Month Club selections. Ariel lives with her husband and four sons outside of Nashville, where she splits her time between the grocery store and the baseball fields. I love that. <laughs> I love that. There, yeah. in there. I feel that, and I only have one. I don't yeah, know four. how she does that. We don't know. Her new novel, The Frozen River, is set to be released on December 5th. In a starred review, Kirkus called it a vivid, exciting page-turner from one of our most interesting authors of historical fiction. And I agree. And she is the, not she, the book is an NPR Best Book of the Year. It got the trifecta, a Publisher Weekly star, a Booklist star, a Kirkus star, and as a bonus, the Book of the Month Club. And there's another huge announcement coming soon. So, Sean, can you bring Ariel on so we can talk to her and not just about her? Hey, hi, Ariel. Hello. Thank you for having me. Always. You are a Friends and Fiction community favorite. I think this is maybe your third time yes, visiting. Third. I know. It's so exciting. So I remember when you first started writing this book and it has been quite the haul and we're going to talk about all of it because I think this book is extraordinary. Um, let us get set in the book. We are in Maine. 
It's very cold. It's winter. It is 1789. And the Kennebec, am I saying that right? Kennebec? Yes. Kennebec River freezes over. And a man is found entombed in the ice. Hello to the opening of the novel. Then healer and midwife Martha Ballard, our lost to time heroine, is summoned to examine the body and determine the cause of death. When it is discovered that her diary is a record of every birth and death in the town, her family and everything she holds dear is put under a microscope. So although a mystery starts the novel, it is about so much more than a mystery. Tell us what you believe in Friends and Fiction Faction. The book is really about at its heart. Well, I like to say that it is a murder mystery and it is a rape trial. That is the overarching plot of the story, but it's really about marriage and motherhood and a woman in midlife. And those three things, marriage, motherhood, and midlife, really take on momentum as the book goes on. Oh, what an, you have got, you're about to go on the road and you have got it down. I've been, yeah. it, is not, it is not my turn, but can I ask you like a super brief question? Yes. So when you were writing this book, could you have said it's about marriage, motherhood, and midlife? Or is it like in reflecting back on it that you know that's what it's about? Absolutely reflecting back. I never know what my books are about yeah. when I'm actually writing okay. them. I am Same. in the weeds. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I always have that problem too. Like it, it's, you're so immersed in it that you don't, you kind of can't see the forest for the trees, right? It's yeah. it's only afterwards. And I, I always find that when we go on the road too, people, people's reactions to the book help tell you what the book's yes. about. So, yes. And it shifts. Yeah. 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 Or absolutely. like that first really great interview that you do and you're like, oh, that, oh yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. Because we can never read our own books, right? We can yes. have a relationship to them that a reader does. Yep. It, it's just different and it's apart from the book. So when somebody reads it and they get to enjoy it as a reader, they see it in ways that we never can. Absolutely. That is so true. And I think people imprint true. their yeah. And I think people imprint their own life experiences on the book too. It's just a different experience for everybody. But anyhow, so Ariel, in your author's note, you talk about how your parents collected strangers when you were a child and how you now collect people in different ways. You collect them from the library, from magazines, from the far corners of the internet. Your novels have brought to life so many fascinating people from a missing judge in 1930 to the only woman to serve aboard a Zeppelin to a Russian Grand Duchess, to the most decorated woman to serve in World War II, and now a renowned and nearly forgotten healer and midwife in the person of Martha Ballard. So can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration behind this book? I think we've heard something about a magazine in a doctor's office. Yes. So fun story. I actually <laughs> came up with this novel before any of my others, before I'd what? written any of my current published novels. I was pregnant with my fourth son and I was in the doctor's office. I was about five months along and I'd gone in for my monthly appointment and my doctor was late. He got stuck at the hospital with this really tricky delivery. So I got stuck in his waiting room and I kind of had two choices. I could wait it out or I could reschedule and go home. But if I went home, I had to parent the other two. <laughs> and since I had a sitter, I decided to stick it out. I don't know. It was just a break. I mean, you know how it is when you have 900 little kids. 
So I sat in that waiting room all afternoon and I finished the book I brought with me. And then I went through all of the magazines in the office. And by the end, I was down to like this really scary pile of pamphlets, you know, the ones they put in the corner and they're all telling you how you're going to die. But I was, you know, dug through those pamphlets. And at the bottom, there was this little devotional. It was really common in doctor's offices in Texas at the time. And the devotional was called Our Daily Bread. So I opened it up to that day. August 4th, 2008. And there was the story of a midwife named Martha Ballard, who delivered over a thousand babies in the course of her career, but never lost a mother in childbirth. And there I was sitting in this doctor's office pregnant. And I thought to myself, my doctor can't boast a record like that. But this woman lived in the late 1700s and did not have any of the benefits of modern medicine and she never lost a patient. That's astonishing. And of course, all the little hairs stood up on the back of my neck and I thought that would make a great novel. So I ripped the page out of the devotional. I stuck (laughs) my purse and I kid you not, my doctor walked in just a couple minutes later. Oh, wow. That is incredible. Okay. But so that was so many years ago though. Did you work on it at the time or what made you you pick it back up and I went home and I did a little bit of research and I found that there were two books about Martha Ballard. One is this one called A Midwife's Tale. It's a biography of her. And then the other is her actual diary that is hundreds of pages long and completely desecrated by me now. And I thought I need more time. And it was a big story. In hindsight, what I think I needed wasn't time necessarily. It was more experience as a mother under my belt. Ah. So I kept that idea. I kept that little scrap of paper. It's been in my files for 15 years. I still have it. It's in my notes for this book. And about three years ago, when it was time to write the next book, I went back to my file and I pulled out that little slip of paper and I thought, I think I understand her a little (gasps) bit better now. Wow. That was the beginning of COVID. And here we are. Wow, what a story. Well, this is such an immersive read during one long cold winter in Hallowell, Maine in in 1789. From the moment that body was found frozen in the river to the stunning end, we feel as if we live on the Hallowell. From the rituals and the routines of early America to the yet unformed laws, from the homesteading process of owning land in a mill the setting and time period is just fascinating. There must have been an incredible amount of research to make it feel so real to us. Now, you showed us Martha's Diary and the other book. What do you think was the most important important source of research for you? And, and did you go to Maine? I wish I could have gone to Maine. I wrote this entirely during COVID. Oh, right. The entire wow. world okay. was locked at home. Yeah, we've all done that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I wrote two books during that time. And it's interesting. I do think the most important point of research was Martha's diary itself. And it's funny if you read it, which you probably won't. It's very long. It's very dry. There's one phrase that she repeats over and over and over over the course of 30 years as she keeps this journal. And it's, I have been at home. So many days she'd finish out her diary for the day and she'd write, I have been at home. And I remember thinking, me too, Martha. (laughs) Oh, I have been at home. But it was, you know how these things work out. It's fate. It's always fate. Yeah. 
I wrote this story at a time when I was at home and I wrote it in a way that she lived her entire life, which was her family and her career were made out of whole cloth. She lived and worked with her family present. Her husband was there. Her kids were there. Her kids were assisting her sometimes, or her husband was with her when she went to a birth. There was no separation. And for the first time in my career, I experienced that writing this book. There was no separation between my work life and my family life. And in hindsight, I think it really helped me find her and tell her story, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. Definitely does. Yeah. It's such, a, it's such a, I think that's an experience that all four of us yeah. Yeah. share with you um, from writing early in the morning. Mm-hmm before the world awakened. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, it was definitely different for sure. Yeah. Well, this book opens with a body found floating in the river or frozen to be more accurate, as Patty mentioned. And although we rarely doubt why this man named James Burgess was killed, we sure do want to know who killed him and how. <laughs> so part of the genius of the novel is this. We don't want someone to be blamed when they're innocent and yet we aren't sure we want James's murderer to be caught, as James seemed to have sort of had it coming. So you take us on an extraordinary journey to the truth, which leads me to wonder, did you always know who did it and what would happen to all those who were both suspected and innocent? Ooh, that is a great question. And here's what I can tell you. Two things. I wanted to write a murder mystery. So I did. I love a good murder mystery. And in this particular instance, I did know who did it the whole time. Mm-hmm. But the reason, the way that I figured that out, because I'm a plotter, I have to know, like I have to know. I do love surprises, but I want like 5% of the book to be <laughs> Yeah. Not right. 95. I'm the same. So when I was plotting this out and researching, I sat down and I asking myself I knew all of the characters I knew their relationship to the story and I thought who is the one person that could not have done this and I made a list of all the reasons of why people could or couldn't and I found the one that absolutely could not have done it and that's the person that I had to do in the end I started at the end like with the impossible option and I reverse engineered the whole book Wow. I love it. That's awesome. Incredible. Okay. So you've told us that you are a plotter, but you have about six or more suspenseful Mm -hmm. subplots in this novel and all of them wind together for a breathtaking ending. So what was most useful about this process as you plotted this book and decided how to structure it to narrate Martha's story? So one of the, I mean, every book has its complications, right? Every book has the things that are going to be easy and every book has the things that are going to be really hard. And one of the really hard complications of this book is it takes place over six months, long winter. Everyone is trapped in this town. Automatically, that gives you this sense of claustrophobia and it gives you the sense that not a lot is going on. It's winter and they're trapped there. So again, in my reverse engineering brain, I knew that I had to have all of these other threads. There had to be other things happening beyond this whodunit of a murder mystery. So there's also a rape trial happening because you learn very quickly, this is not a spoiler, that the man found dead in the ice deserves to die. He is one of two men accused of assaulting a woman several months earlier. 
the so preacher's wife. Yes, the preacher's wife. And that is real. That All of that is true wow. in real life. It's horrible okay. and it's true. There is, oh goodness, what else? There's a really fun thread. My favorite subplot in the entire novel is sort of this battle between midwifery and obstetrics. There's a new doctor who moves mm-hmm. in and he is convinced he's 24 years old and he's just graduated from Harvard and he is convinced that he knows better about delivering babies than a woman who's been doing it for 30 years. There are all kinds of subplots happening and all of them in their own way are related to this murder mystery. So they're all connected to the main story. And for me, that's the fun part to sit there and my sister calls it my murder wall in my office. <laughs> I love it. It's where I have all the pictures and all the threads and the notes and I'm connecting things. And the fun part for me is figuring that out and getting it straight in my head first and then in my notes and then finally on the page. It's awesome. That's great. You know, I'm, I'm so spellbound by what you're saying. I forgot. Oh, I have the next question. <laughs> I was surprised to learn how illiterate women were in the 1700s in rural America. You know, you know, men believed that women didn't need to read. There are some that still feel that way. Um, in the novel, Martha doesn't learn to read until she's married. Talk to us about Martha's need to keep a journal and how her ability to read changes her life and the life of this town. Yeah, it's it's a great question. In the 1700s, most women, most people were illiterate, but certainly most women. But if you think about it, somebody thought it was important that Martha learned to read. And the question I wanted to answer is who? We don't know in real life. So that part is fictional. The answer to that question is fictional. And she learns after she's married and she begins to keep this journal. And I mean... She kept it faithfully for 30 years and passed it down to family member, to family member, to family member. And I wanted to know why. Why is it so, why was it so important for her to keep this record of her life? And that's one of the things that I puzzle through in the novel, one of the motivations she has. But even then, taking a step farther back, had she not done that, she would have been completely lost to history. Yeah. She wrote herself into history with that journal. Her journal, her diary is the only written record of that rape trial that happened. There is one court document that has the verdict, but Martha is the only person that bothered to write down what was said and how the trial went. She also happens to be the person who was called to attend the young pastor's wife after she was assaulted. So in her diary are also the entries of how she found the woman and what happened that night. But what that means is that when the rape trial happened, Martha became the primary witness in that trial itself. So she's not only recording what happens, but she's pulled into the actual trial. Yeah. You know, you write this from Martha's POV, this next, this next passage, but it could be any of us. I have lost my train of thought. (laughs) Cannot recall what I meant to find in the diary. This is the trouble faced by any woman who sets pen to paper in a busy household. (laughs) I am never guaranteed the certainty of quiet, much less of a solid length of time to chase my thoughts and bind them together. (laughs) Uh, Amen, sister. 
<laughs> women separated by time and space. And yet you tap into a universal longing to find that quiet to write. Did you feel as if you came to know Martha so intimately over the years that you thought about this novel, you could voice all of our own longings? So two pronged answer and it's contradictory. Yes. <laughs> Because I was reading her actual words. I mean, I was snooping on her life. When you read somebody's diary, that's what you're doing. You're just peeking over their shoulder. So yes, but also no. Because if you read her diary, you will find one really interesting fact is that she does not editorialize at all. You will find little to no emotion. She records it almost with a clinical viewpoint. There are, I can probably count on one hand, the number of passages in 30 years worth of diary entries where she expresses a strong emotion, anger wow. or grief or fear. So that made finding her voice really, really difficult. I had to create her personality and her voice and her sort of way of being in the world from scratch. And that's the first time I've had to do that when writing about a historical character, because there's always been some source material, mm. an autobiography or an interview or somebody else that knew that person commenting on who they were, but I had to find out who she was all on my own. So the Martha you read here is my creation. That's awesome. Was that nerve wracking? Like, did you feel a lot of responsibility to do that? A little bit. Yes. So much time has passed that I don't necessarily live in fear yeah. of one of her grandchildren emailing me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't even mean that. Yeah. I just, yeah. But it was kind of fun. It was kind of yeah. fun to create her. And honestly, I drew very heavily, like her personality, her voice, her very, she's a woman of few words but she has a lot of actions. So I, you know, mm. always, I wrote my mother in to oh. her. Ah. Now does she, are there any living descendants? Do you know, Ariel? Oh, I'm sure they are. I have not found them. It's mm. people always ask me if I go find the living relatives or the friends and I don't on purpose. Yeah. Partly yeah. because I just don't want to send up a flare and say, Hey, I'm doing this thing. Right. Like <laughs> mine. Um, but also I don't want to have to carry anyone else's expectations. Yes. And at the end of the day, it's, I mean, you know what it's like, your name is on the cover of that book. And so I bear the responsibility for it. And I, I have to just let that be my own determination to do right by their memories and to tell their stories correctly without having external voices telling me what they ought to be. Yeah. 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 That's important. Okay, well, there is so much to be said about women's roles in this novel and in the world. And this line was such a gut punch. I cry for every woman who lives, suffers, and dies by the mercurial whims of men. As much as things have changed, there are some things that stay the same. As you researched women, and especially women in medicine in this time, tell us how you incorporated all of this into the novel. In other words, the question always comes up in historical fiction. It's imagined, but it's factual. Yes. So I would say... 75% of what happens in the book is real, happened according to history. I made a few changes. Like in the real story of the rape trial, there were actually three men accused. It was too many. It was untenable for the book. So I just wrote one of them out altogether. And then I killed the other guy at the beginning. So that 
was just a literary choice that would help me manage it. Um, but other than that, it was building the things that I knew and then filling in the gaps. For instance, I knew that Martha had been married for 35 years. I knew that she'd had nine children. I didn't know what the relationships were. So I had to build that. I had to create it and weave it into what we already know happened in history. Now, you mentioned the nine children. There's so much about motherhood in this novel, the pains, the joys, Mm. the absolute fathomless love that we have for our children. Mm. And you write with such deep feeling here in this quote from the book, like all mothers, I have long since mastered the art of nursing joy at one breast and grief at the other, which I think is really profound. So as a mother of four sons yourself, there must be some of you in those thoughts and those feelings about motherhood in this novel, about boys turning into men and about loss as they grow into their own people. Can you talk a little bit about your how your own experience of motherhood has imprinted itself in the novel a little bit, or, or maybe it hasn't? Can you talk a no, little bit about that? No, that's a great question, and it absolutely has. Any of those passages that you read, it's me. It's me working yes. through the process of hitting the stage of motherhood where my children are leaving. And that's really where Martha is in this book. Her children are older. She doesn't have babies anymore. She either has grown children or children that are leaving the nest. And I opened the vein and spilled it on the page. And I always tell people that that's the most terrifying part of writing. If you ever want to know what a writer believes, if you want to know their worldview, if you want to know what they value, what they're afraid of, all you have to do is read something they've written because it's there. We can't hide it. We spill it onto the page yeah. and it can be really freeing, but it can also feel really vulnerable. And sometimes I yeah. will flip back to one of those passages and go, oh God, I put that in print. Yeah. yeah. I put that bad day with my oldest in print. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I also think it's those um, those books where we open our veins the most that strike mm-hmm. a chord that, that strike the deepest chord with people. So, mm-hmm. um, just hearing you talk about it now, I can understand why it's um, why it's having the reception out in the world that it is. Why so many people are reacting so strongly to it. Just ta- also talking about things that are personal pieces of us in the novel. Her, Martha's marriage is so kind and so loving and so sweet, yet she's no wilting flower. Right. And he's the one tough man who's tender to her. So I know you've said that your own marriage was the inspiration for this marriage. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I I don't know. I feel very strongly that we don't see enough good marriages in print. Good we just point. don't. And yes. I think it's because a bad marriage is easier to write all of the tension is there. It's inherent. It's easier. If you're writing about a good marriage, all of the tension and trouble has to come from elsewhere in the story. But the true story of Martha Ballard is that this, she was 54 years old when all of this happened. She'd been married for 35 years. And I thought that is, that's fun to write about. Here's a woman who has seen some stuff. She has lived a lot. There is a lot of life under her belt. And fiction seems to be primarily populated sort of by the young buxom blonde in her 20s and 30s. But I wanted to write a character that reflected more of where I am, which is midlife, a mature woman who's got decades of marriage under her belt, the good, the bad, the ugly, all the hard things, who's seen grief, who 
has lost children. Martha Ballard had nine children and she lost three of them. And the story opens and she's got six of them left. And I've never lost a child like that, but I have had a miscarriage. I understand a little tiny bit of what it means to know there would have been a person here that is not here. And to explore all of that in the context of a wider, bigger story, a murder mystery that has consequences for Martha's family was really fun. Which brings me to say, I feel that more than any book I've read of yours, and I've read them all, The Frozen River, I hear you. I hear your voice. You know, we have conversations about kids and grown sons and Mm. the tribulations. And I've heard your deep feelings and they're in this book. So do you feel this or am I projecting this amazing woman right onto you? I mean, I hope there's some of me in there. I really do think I drew heavily from my mom and from my sister. So it's all of us. It's all maybe of us. it's all of us, but that's also true. Yeah. I don't know how my kids would feel hearing this, but they're not going to listen. So it's fine. Um, <laughs> I could not have written this book until my children had broken me. Yeah. You don't know what I'm talking about. It means your kids haven't broken you yet. Yeah. <laughs> You'll survive. Everything will be fine. But there is this really fascinating thing that happens, particularly raising boys when they reach the certain age and they separate. And that separation creates, oh God, it creates this tearing and this tension. And it's so important and it's so necessary. But what it does to your mother heart is Mm. profound and hard and beautiful. Yeah. And I was living all of that as I was writing this. And I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have done that 15 years ago when I first found this story. They were still sweet and precious. And <laughs> and you were pregnant with one of them. Yes. And now they're big and smelly and in college and high school. <laughs> My sister-in-law yeah. says it's like a boy breaking up with you, like, incrementally. So slowly. Yes. Yes. I saw a meme today that said texting your grown son is like texting a boy in high school who doesn't want to answer you. (laughs) (laughs) The willpower it took to not screenshot that and send it to every one of my kids. I I sent it to my son. I deserve a tape parade for not. Yeah. (laughs) Answers are like K. Yeah. THX. And you're like, yeah. Can't talk. Right. I had recently yell at me because I used punctuation when I texted <laughs> him. And he's like, why are you mad? Why are you mad every time you text me? And I was like, what are you talking about? Goes, every time you text me, you use punctuation. <laughs> oh, my God. You know what I do for a living? Like, did you just sit here? Are you paying attention? I oh my gosh. not use punctuation. Right. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to give you a couple reader comments because I think they're great. Ellen Lucy says she is from Maine near Hollowell. And so she has to go get this book. A lot of people have questions about the journal. Mm -hmm. Have you ever, um, how did her journal survive? That's from Michelle Marcus. Would you want someone to read your journal a hundred years from now? I think there's a difference between a journal and a diary. My journals have to be burned. I'll answer yeah. the second question first. I will burn it all. That's me too. Like nothing stays. Nothing. Nobody gets to know. Like 
I might burn it next week just on principle. Because um, <laughs> I do I do keep diaries, but they're for me. I yeah. See, I think there's a difference between a diary and a journal. Like a diary is a daily, yeah. I journal. So this so. actually, I don't know if you're familiar with a day book. A day book is like the date and the time and very short. There's, like I said, there's not a lot of emotion here. So we call it a diary. It really is more of a day book. Um, okay. So no, absolutely not. No one ever gets to read them. They die with me. Ditto. Hers um, survived, however, because... When Martha passed, one of her daughters collected them and kept them and then gave them to her daughter who gave them to her daughter. And they went through several generations of Martha's family until they ended up at the Maine State Library, which is where they are today. Oh, that's awesome. Interesting. Because somebody, somebody saw them and went, oh, that's a valuable record of that time and of what happened in this town. So Thankfully, they were not chucked into the rubbish or into a fire like they could have been. Wow. Yeah, not surprising that it was all daughters that saved them. (laughs) Well, like if you look at Martha's family tree, you'll see that she's the great aunt of Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross. And she's the great, great grandmother of Mary Hobart, who was one of the first female physicians in the United States. Nothing else. The women in her family valued the medical legacy that she kept and they could look at this as a textbook, if nothing else, for how to perform certain procedures. So interesting. And how to be a woman in an inhospitable world and still practice the healing arts. Yeah. Even if other people were saying, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, Ariel. Okay. We have one last question for Ariel, but first we want to remind all of you out there to head over to friendsandfiction.com to find out more about our podcast and our newsletter. So Ariel has this amazing Q&A in our newsletter this week. And if you're not signed up, you miss all of that. And subscribing is totally free. So make sure you're signed up for both at friendsandfiction.com. So Ariel, before we let you go, I have been reading your Substack newsletter. And I love it, especially the one about Ireland. Mm. I I read it like three times because you had like the things you've learned while traveling with friends in Mm -hmm. Ireland. And it was, it's so good, but you also give really good writing advice on your Substack. So can you tell our viewers where to find your Substack and how to find you on the road and online in the coming weeks while this book explodes into the world? Yes. Thank you. And thank you for mentioning that. I, as Patty mentioned, I did start a Substack earlier this year. I miss writing in longer form. I miss blogging. And I also wanted a place where I could teach everything that I know about writing. So I am going through a writing series as I work on my new novel. And you can go to ariellahan.substack.com to subscribe. And I have all kinds of stuff on there. Some of them are personal essays. There are short stories. There are general interest essays, and then also my writing series. And that has been really, really fun. I'm also everywhere on social media, but really the only one that I actively use is Instagram. And so it's at ariel.lawhon. And I would love to chat. And you're going to be on the road too. I am. I will be... Ooh, next week I will be at Page and Palette. I will be at a likely story. I will be at M. Judson and Litchfield and Pelican Books. That is my 
December leg of the tour. And that's, I've posted all of those on Instagram tonight. So if you want to go find me, you can see exactly where I'll be. And then in January, I have leg two of the tour. And we'll be together in Huntsville. Yeah, we will. Yeah. Oh, Ariel, thank you so much for being with us. Thank this you. is an astounding novel and we're so thrilled for our community to find out about it and go grab it. So thank you for being with us. Good luck on the thank road. You. Thank you for having me. Oh, oh, it's a pleasure. So glad to. All right, everybody. Don't forget, you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube or rewatch this one because it was so interesting. We will be back next week to welcome number one, New York Times bestselling phenom Tessa Bailey to discuss her steamy new, weird to say steamy and rom-com and Christmas in the same <laughs> sentence, but I just did. Steamy new Christmas rom-com called Wreck the Halls. So don't miss it. And also don't go anywhere because we have an after show in about 20 seconds. But next week we have a fun episode in store for you and we can't wait. So thank you for being with us tonight. We are always honored and everybody have a wonderful week and see you in a couple seconds. Oh, hey, oh, you guys. Hey. Oh, yay. That was great. She, I loved her. She's awesome. Thank Isn't you. it weird how, and I bet every one of us could say this, there's a novel that we couldn't have written until yep. we wrote it. Yes. Do you have one, Kathy? Mary Kay? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> no, but do you ever feel like there's a novel you wrote that you would have said, I couldn't have written that before? Yeah, I mean, High Tide Club, which had a dual timeline, you know, a little bit of historic fiction. I could not have written that earlier in my career, and I yeah. almost couldn't write it when I did write it. It almost killed me. Yeah. How about you, Kristen? Did you ever have that happen? Like, yeah. you were like... It, it was probably The Sweetness of Forgetting, which was my 2012 book, and it was my transition into historical fiction. I couldn't have done that any earlier than I did. Um, yeah. I, I, it, and it, it, I think I needed to develop as a writer, but more kind of like Ariel said, I needed to develop um, as a person. Like I think she, she was talking about how she needed to go through things as a mother to sort of be able to understand that. And I, I needed to be a different, older, more mature human being, if that makes Before sense. Before you wrote that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. How about you, Chrissy? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't have written Dear Carolina without being a mother for sure. I mean, yep. that was like a, <clears throat> one of those like lightning bolt kind of stories for me. And then I definitely couldn't have written the wedding veil if I hadn't written a lot of other things before, just because, I mean, one, the confidence of feeling like you could put together a story yeah. know, about someone else's life. And then, um, and I mean, and honestly, you know, you guys <laughs> were like, write the book, you're writing the book. Making excuses, <laughs> write the book. If you're so scared, write it too. double. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about you, Patty? I could never, well, what's fascinating is there's no way I could have written Becoming Mrs. Lewis, which I consider kind of the book where I switched gears and, and really put yeah. more of myself into it than any of my others. But also what happened was I, the, you know, the box of her poetry had been found. And if I had tried to write that book, say 10 years before, or even eight years before, I wouldn't have had the yeah. 54 love sonnets she wrote to C.S. Lewis. Like I wouldn't have had, and that guided the whole book. Yeah. So I think there's just books that have a right time. And I bet Ariel would say that um, being locked down changed yeah. that book too, because Martha lived in a very locked down 
world that winter. So, yeah. 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 All right. How was Thanksgiving for everyone? Was it awesome? It was good. Yeah. Tell us what you did, Kristen, because you went to, you saw some friends and went to Universal. Oh yeah. I mean, we're always going to the Disney parks. My, my, uh, my friend Kristen was here in town, which was very nice. Awesome. Um, oh, we love her. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. She's so great. You guys all know her. Um, so she was here with her mom and, and her two, uh, her two boys, um, who were like my nephews. I mean, I've known them both since they, I, I'm the, the godmother to one of them. They're just, I, I love them all so much. Um, so that was great. She left this morning and I feel heartbroken that she's gone, but, um, yeah. it was wonderful. Yep. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Mary Kay? Um, we had 16 or 17 for Thanksgiving dinner. It's a if you're not sure if it's 16 or 17. <laughs> well, we were did seven, someone come and go? Just and 18, and we had a no show, which is not unusual. Um, you know, there's always that relative who who you invite and they never say they say they're coming, but you really you really yeah. kind of halfway know they're never they're not coming. Um we had the great um the gravy um, debate of 2023, <laughs> where my nephew uh, boldly declared that um, his gravy maybe was better. But um, I know. So but he, is, <laughs> he is a good cook and he does always bring the um, homemade yeast rolls. So I decided not to stab him. We're glad you I did think, it. We're glad. I think that's a real opportunity to say, fantastic. Next year, you can bring the yeast rolls and the gravy. It could happen. Well, Christmas is still coming up. So maybe I'll give him a shot. And the turkey and the stuffing and the wine. Exactly. All the wine. All the way. You can come set the table, too, and vacuum a little. Yeah. yeah. And do the dishes. Yeah. Um, we had a great time. We had... We have, we've had both sides of the family for like a year. I mean, since Will and I got married, which is really funny. Um, but we have the opposite. We always have people that say they're not going to come and they always do <laughs> that. I just like set a couple extra places at the table because, you know, when you have like food or whatever, when you're ready for, you know, 13 and 15 come it, that, that makes a difference. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's Better but, have leftovers than not yeah. enough. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, but anyway, no, we love it. We have so much fun. My nephews are like right on either side of Will and they just have the best time. And it's just great. It's fun. No, It always oh, goes so fast. You had a, where were you? Were you in Palmetto? I was in South Carolina and we had 13. Um, and I know how many, like I wasn't sure. I asked that <laughs> like I didn't know. Where were you, Patty? Were you <laughs> I had 13 and most of them stayed with me and we had an absolute blast. We had, we just ate and enjoyed each other. And I, I think with y'all too, the weather was just so cooperative and beautiful. And um, we played a rousing game of charades and made <laughs> idiots of ourselves and I don't know. I just, it was one of the nicest Thanksgivings. There was no real drama and I was missing two of my kids, which was really sad. One, my son, Thomas is engaged. And so he spent Christmas with his fiance's family and we get them for Christmas. He spent Thanksgiving with his fiance's family and we get him for Christmas. And then of course I just left Megan in Hawaii. So she wasn't there. 
But well, now maybe we know the source of the drama. I know. Really? <laughs> I know. Exactly. Or we all just got older and everybody's just. <laughs> so um, Meg just posted that Sue Johnson Bishop is asking Christy, if you watched the Bill Morris Dates movie on Hallmark last weekend, she said it was kind of magical and she really enjoyed it. I have not. I'm boycotting it because they should have made wedding film. <laughs> exactly. There you go. No, I'm just kidding. I love Hallmark movies and I cannot wait to watch it. And a bunch of people have texted me and told me that it was like really, really good. So um, if I don't get to it this week, I'll definitely watch it this weekend. I'm very excited. I'm very excited just because I feel like I spent a lot of like really in-depth time there and just to kind of get to see like, I have to tell y'all though, it shocks me, shocks me. That they let them film a movie there. I know. Like, yeah. I'm stunned yeah. by that. Like I yeah. am stunned. So yeah. anyway, I mean, Agreed. it's going to be great though. And to like let people into the world of Biltmore who will never get to visit it otherwise is really, really cool. That is really cool. And um, Kathy, Mary Kay, I know that your house has thrown up plaid <laughs> and tinsel <laughs> and Christmas. I mean, it is, it is decorated for, I feel like you should have at least four Christmas parties the way <laughs> Well, we're having two. Okay. Yep. All right. Halfway there. My book club <laughs> Christmas party, my book club Christmas party is always at my house. So that gives me a deadline to get it decorated. Okay. And then um, we're going to have a special, a special thing for a friend um, and it will be a surprise. But um, yeah, supposedly um, the AJC is doing a story about Mary Kay Andrews' house at Christmas. And so the reporter came and we spent five days fluffing and cleaning. Oh my God, y'all, I vacuumed lampshades. (laughs) That's amazing. With my little, you know, handheld back. And and, because, you know, I'm not a big house cleaner person. Um, Tom (laughs) had to show me how to use a new vacuum cleaner. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god that's but so the photographer awesome. didn't come the photographer didn't come with the reporter so i gotta keep this dump clean until the photographer shows up <laughs> yeah that that was all i could think about when you said that when i was like oh yeah. but the reporter got to see it i'm like she has to clean that house up all over again what are y'all talking yeah. about well, we will yeah. not be ready for an exam and you would go to class and they would say oh we've moved the exam till next week <laughs> yeah. and i would be like I've already studied and I'm going to forget all of it my next week. Yeah. Yep. It's all going to fall yeah. out of my brain. Yeah. And yeah. So this Mary weekend, Kay, you are a grand marshal this weekend. I am in cashiers, North Carolina for their Christmas parade Saturday, during which it is a 90% chance of rain. Oh. So there's that. Yikes. You're going to have so much fun and Meg gets to go with you. So Meg, yeah. Well, Meg yeah. And gonna and hope the 10%. Down. What? We're going to hope you're in the 10%. That's yeah. right. It's possible. It might, maybe it won't rain all day anyways. You know what I mean? Maybe, yeah. maybe it won't rain at parade time. You know, we'll, we'll have delightful dinners out. Patty, I got to get some suggestions for restaurants. Okay. And uh, I'm practicing my wave. I'm trying not to, I, I don't want to be, I don't want the regal. <laughs> I want relatable. Like hey, y'all. I just threw candy at everybody because I felt dumb waving. Oh, okay. Ah, people like candy. That's good. That's a good. It may be a very popular float in Little Will Road, and that was really fun too. So if you have a may, maybe Meg can run. Could you do this, or does that look like you're saying get away? Like, no, I think you need to be. I, I think, think it's like this. Hi, y'all. Oh, hey. there you go. Hi. That's like a problem. Can you do a double wave? 
Yeah. Oh, hey. Jazz hands. It's supposed to rain here too. And it's not, it's our flotilla and it's not good timing because we're having a flotilla party and I'm, but we're putting, I think we're going to put tents up in the yard before we leave for Raleigh. So if it rains, he'll still be trying to Can I put a plug in for my last event of 2023? Yes. Okay. If anybody out there is in the area, I'm going to be um, at the North Carolina State Fairgrounds in Raleigh on Friday from three to seven with the Junior League of Raleigh and Quail Ridge Books at their shopping spree. It's so fun. If you've never been there, it's like Christmas mayhem in the best possible way. And you can get like all of your shopping done like that. Um, but anyway, yeah. you, you can't buy a happier life yet, but you, you can buy my order cocktail party and there's food <laughs> and there's wine and all the good stuff. So come see me if you're in the area. Awesome. You want to know what to give Christy for Christmas? A pre-order. A pre- there you go. All That's right, me. you guys, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to go eat dinner. I am so happy to see everyone's faces. So next week, Everybody out there, don't forget, Tessa Bailey will be here with four words I rarely put together, her steamy new Christmas rom-com. Wait, wait, I have something to ask. I was thinking, you know, for our um, Christmas office party. Yeah. Yeah. Are we going to do the ugly Christmas sweaters again? We should. Or ugly Christmas headgear. Maybe everybody could vote in the thing. Do we want? Yes, you guys vote. Um, I think we should also ask people to post pictures of themselves on the page in their ugly oh, Christmas sweaters. Great idea. Yeah, great yeah idea. for sure. And oh, I just to remind you to plug your Adriana event. Yes, I am doing a virtual event Monday, 4 p.m. Oh. Eastern with Adriana Trigiani at barnesandnoble.com. You do have to pre-register ahead of time to get the link, but it's it's free and everyone everyone should come and watch and buy books. Yeah. That's awesome. For sure. Okay. Now they want both sweaters oh, and head. I gear. mean, no, you got to pick one or the other. Why can't yeah, we hear seems to be winning. <laughs> Wait, both. <laughs> People are changing their votes to both. I know. I said yeah, either right. or. I didn't I'm say. In. How did you I know where your, where your ugly Christmas sweater is since you've just moved back home? No, I don't know where anything is. Pat's like, where's the can opener? Where's the peeler? Where's, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know. I got through 60 of 120 boxes. So I have more to go. Oh my gosh. Oh. But I think what's good about it is it's a good time of year to do that. It's calm. There's not a lot going on. Right. No, no. It's it just like home. releasing yeah. a book. With it's boxes. Exactly. Have you explained, have you explained to Pat the, um, very real medical disorder called male pattern blindness. Yes, yes. Where's the dog food? Your hand is on it. That's where it is. <laughs> Where's the dog? Right under you. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, we've gone over and egg says we're going off the rails. So <laughs> good night, everyone. Love you badly. Night, Talk to you later. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.